Uh, We're reading from the Christian Standard Bible as normal. Uh, So if you've got a different version, that's okay. The meaning will essentially be the same, but some of the words might be a little bit different. But don't worry about that. It will mean the same thing. Uh, We're looking at Hebrews, which is towards the back of the New Testament. So it's towards the end of your Bible. And if you've got a paper copy, you're looking for the big number 12. That's a chapter number. And then the little number 14, which is your verse number. So Hebrews 12, starting at verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears, because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Amen. Well, do keep that open in front of you, because we're going to be spending the next few minutes looking into that. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, there are certain characteristics, aren't there, that mark out particular kinds of people. Uh, If you see somebody walking down the street with a helmet and a badge, with a truncheon and a set of handcuffs, uh, who are you looking at? Anybody? See if you're awake. Well, it could be a member of the village people, to be fair. Um, But no, it's probably a policeman. Um, So... You can see, looking outwardly, there's a policeman. Uh, But some things are less visible. Uh, There are people, aren't there, who say, I can pick out a soldier, even if they're walking down the street in their civilian clothes, just because of how they act and behave in public. There's something about them that you can pick out. Well, if I was to ask you this morning, what marks out a holy person, what would you say? You know, some people might think of a bloke up in the mountains, sat on a rock doing something like this. Um, I don't think that's the mark of a holy person, particularly. Uh, and I think we all know, don't we, it's not really going to be judged by the clothes that they're wearing, necessarily. Uh, and it's not going to be a big badge that they've got that they're wearing either. So what are the marks of holiness? What are the signs that this is a holy person? Well, that's what our passage today wants to show us. It's the characteristics of holy people. And so just to give you some context where we're at in Hebrews, uh, chapter 11, we looked at a few weeks ago, was the roll call of faith. Loads of people who believed God's promises and encourage us to press on in believing in the Lord Jesus. Then chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that was a call for us to endure to the end for Christ. Jesus is the one we were encouraged to look to as the greatest example of enduring suffering for the sake of greater glory. And then in uh, chapter 12, verses 4 to 13, that Luke spoke last week, uh, the writer talks about suffering as discipline. You know, and it's discipline not in a negative sense, but in the sense that it is training us. Suffering is not a sign, Luke said, uh, that God has abandoned us, but God gives it to us for our benefit because he loves us and he wants us to grow in holiness. And so he's already talking about growth in holiness at this point. And that is the context 
of our passage this morning. The writer is saying, given that the Lord permits suffering for our good, he permits suffering to help us grow in holiness. Well, what does holiness under persecution and suffering look like in practice? That's what we are thinking about this morning. Uh, And I think it's got four things to say to us uh, this morning. Firstly, holy people love even those who persecute them. Secondly, holy people don't suffer because they are horrible. Thirdly, holy people don't forsake holiness for immorality. And fourthly, holy people see holiness as a community activity. So four things that we're going to be looking at this morning. Firstly then, holy people love even those who persecute them. Look with me at verse 14. The link between verse 14 and what we've already seen in this passage uh, is the context fundamentally. So up to verse 13, the writer has encouraged the Hebrews to press on in the face of persecution and suffering. And he says, this is God's good discipline, training you in spiritual maturity. And so in verse 14, he then says, pursue peace with everyone. And that comes in the context of being encouraged to press on with Jesus in the face of persecution. So the point here is that the Hebrew believers must pursue peace with everybody, especially, perhaps, those people who are persecuting them and seeking to do them harm. And that's entirely in line with what Jesus says about loving your enemies praying for those who persecute you, and doing good to those who hate you. The Hebrews are to pursue peace, even with the people who are currently trying to damage and persecute them. Now, peace is to do with your relationship to other people, isn't it? And holiness is really about your relationship with God, your relationship with Jesus. And there is a link between those two things. Having a peaceable attitude, even to our enemies, is a fruit of holiness. Having a peaceable attitude, even to your enemies, is a fruit of holiness. Holy people will be peaceable people, even to their enemies, because that is what Jesus was like. Now you might think, if I have to seek peace with awful people who I hate, you know, I I really can't stick them and I don't want peace with them, maybe I can just do without holiness. Maybe I can hate them and forget this holiness lark, right? But look at what verse 14 says. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So unless we're made holy, we're not going to heaven and we are not going to be with Jesus. And so you can do without holiness if you want, but then you're not going to heaven, which is a problem. And so it looks a bit like this is saying here, right? A little bit like it's saying, you've got to pursue peace in order to be holy, but you might read it and think it's saying, we become holy by pursuing peace. Uh, But that's not what this is saying, okay? We We know from earlier in Hebrews, not least, is that we become Holy, perfectly holy in the Lord Jesus. There's no such thing as being a part holy person. No such thing. 
You are either totally holy in the Lord Jesus or you are absolutely unholy outside of Christ. There's no middle ground here. But what it's saying is, if we belong to Jesus, we will be growing in holiness. We will be pursuing holiness because we are holy. We will be pursuing holiness because we are holy, which is why holy people are peaceable people, because the spirit makes us more like Jesus. And that's why if we're not pursuing holiness, we won't see the Lord. We don't pursue holiness when we aren't holy. If you don't pursue holiness, it means you're not holy. It's a sign that you don't belong to Jesus. But if we are holy and we do belong to Jesus, then we will be pursuing holiness. If we're pursuing holiness, then we will be seeking peace with everybody, even with our enemies, because that is what Jesus did. And holiness, fundamentally, is being like Jesus. That makes sense? Hope you're still with me. Now, I think seeking peace with everyone, lovely, easy thing to say, right? Not so easy to do. Uh, we live in a society, don't we, that sets everything up as fights between enemies. Everything. Just think of the latest political thing that's annoyed you. Doesn't matter what it is, whatever it is. Now, we are so quickly encouraged, aren't we, to view the other side as enemies. And just think of how people talk about one another. How we talk about people who have different views to us. Let me just give you some examples. It doesn't matter what your view on these things is, okay? Take Brexit, for example. Take COVID and how the church responded to COVID. Take your view on green issues. Take your view on LGBT ideology. Take your view on whatever it is and whatever your view and wherever you land on that, people are encouraged to view each other as enemies. And Christian people get sucked right in, don't we? So easily sucked in. The way we talk about people as idiots, stupid, evil. But we do it all the time. Now that's not language that seeks peace, is it? Who's ever been called an idiot and gone, oh, do you want to be mates? <laughs> You're evil. Oh, let's go out for a drink. You know, it, you, It's aggressive. It's contentious language, isn't it? You know, we're not seeking peace when we say those things. And most people, this is the truth, right? Most people on those issues are not your enemies. <laughs> Can't say this enough. Most people on most issues are not your enemies. They're not trying to damage you. They just disagree with you. That's not the same thing. We might not really like their view. We might hate their view. We might think their view is terribly, terribly wrong. We might even think their view is actually damaging in some broader way. All of those things might be true. But we talk about those people horribly. Don't we? 
It's not uncommon to hear Christians denigrate people who just don't share their political views. It's politics, man. It's not... <laughs> you know, we call them all sorts of things. We think all sorts of things about them. We hate them in our hearts sometimes. Now, let's just call that sort of thing what it is. It is ungodly and it is unholy. And it is wrong. And it is sin. Now, if that's what we're often like on political things, like matters of disagreement, not persecution, disagreement, how ungodly are we likely to be when people are actually trying to damage us? Think of what you're like with someone you don't agree with on politics. And they're not trying to damage you, are they? They just disagree. Think of what you're like when someone is trying to damage you. How ungodly we are. And we do it not just out there as well. We do it in here. To our brothers and sisters in Christ. The things we think about people who aren't attacking us. They aren't harming us. They've just got a different view to us. And we think all sorts of things about them. We maybe even say all sorts of things about them. We quickly go on the offensive like they're enemies out to harm us. And if we don't do that, you know, we can have angry, ungracious, frankly, unholy thoughts in our minds all about them. Now, again, if that's how we are with Christians in the church who aren't attacking us, they just have a different view to us. How will we pursue peace with people who are actually trying to harm us? You know, I know for myself, the last thing I want when someone is trying to damage me is to do good to them. The last thing I want. I want peace with them like I want a hole in the head. You know, I want justice, right? God needs to start smiting someone and he needs to do it now because they've upset me. I want grace for whatever I've done, you know, grace for me, uh, but justice for you. That's, I should get that on a t-shirt. Um, but that isn't peaceable, is it? I know that's what I'm like, but that isn't peaceable. That is not imitating the Lord Jesus, is it? And if we aren't interested in being like the Lord Jesus Christ, then what does that say about our holiness and whether we actually belong to him at all? Now, ask yourself this. Do you seek peace with people when they disagree with you? And that doesn't mean you bludgeon them into agreement until they basically go, oh, fine, whatever. Do you actually seek peace with people, even if you disagree? Do you seek peace with people when you've been upset by them for, in whatever way? Or do you just sit there bottling it up and thinking all sorts of dreadful things on them? What about with people who are actually trying to hurt you and harm you? Do you try and seek peace with them? Because that is what Jesus did, isn't it? He died to bring peace between man and God. Peace with people who hated him. Peace with people who were genuinely his enemies. 
Jesus was on the cross seeking the good of those who were crucifying him as they were doing it. I mean, can you imagine that? And here's us. We can't even bear the thought of seeking the good of brothers and sisters who don't think exactly the same things as we do. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? You know, this is the call on us. Let us pursue peace and let us pursue holiness because that is the way of Jesus. Holy people love even those who persecute them. Second, though, holy people don't suffer because they're horrible. So if you look in verse 14, the writer says to pursue peace with people, even those persecuting us. But he wants to make it clear that any persecution we face shouldn't be because we are awful, obnoxious people. Right? Verse 15 says this. Make sure no one falls short of the grace of God. Just read that again. Make sure no one falls short of the grace of God. Make sure you remain gracious. Your suffering should not be a result of you being obnoxious. That's what he's saying. It says, make sure no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. Don't become bitter and twisted when you are facing suffering and persecution, however big or small that may be. Don't lash out at the people persecuting you because that makes trouble. In other words, he's saying do not be the cause of your own suffering. If you suffer persecution, make sure that it is actually for the sake of Jesus Make sure that others are definitely the problem attacking you because of your faith in Christ, not because of the way you are going around behaving towards them. Holy people do not go around acting like obnoxious pillocks and then complaining that people treat them like obnoxious pillocks. <laughs> That's what it's saying. That's not suffering for the name of Christ, is it? That's called being a jackass, <laughs> right? Now, when you genuinely suffer for the name of Jesus, so, and you've made sure it's not you, it really is because of your faith, right? Holy people do not become bitter. They do not start lashing out and making the trouble even worse for themselves. They don't get angry. They don't lash out. They don't seek to get their own back. What does it say in Galatians 5? These are the fruits of the Spirit, right? Just pay attention to these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, they don't disappear when you face persecution, do they? Or at least they shouldn't. None of those fruits are anger, bitterness, revenge, fighting, punching people who've annoyed you. Saying rude things to people because you don't like them. Those are the opposite of the fruits of the Spirit, aren't they? And those fruits of the Spirit should exist whether we are facing persecution or we're not. If you're characterised by a lack of grace 
and you are characterised by a lack of charity, and you are full of bitterness and aggression and revenge, then what we can say is the fruits of the Spirit are not really on display in your life. Now, not only is that a sign, at least, of spiritual immaturity, those things will be a cause of even more suffering for you. Because if you look in verse 15, these things cause trouble and defile many. You will make things worse for yourself. Don't let ungodly behaviour be the reason that people persecute you. That's what he's saying. If you are persecuted, don't get bitter. Holy people are not bitter people. Don't be obnoxious. Holy people are not obnoxious people. Don't be horrible back to other people and say that's what they deserve. Holy people don't do that. That's what he's saying. Don't invite more suffering on yourself because people are going to get more angry with you because of how you react. Now what does that mean for us here? It means we need to be careful how we think, speak and act towards other people. Do the thoughts I have in my mind about people lead me to love them better or are they making me bitter and wish harm upon them? When I speak about people, do I use gracious language? Do I represent them as well as I possibly can? Or do I encourage bitterness in myself and whoever I'm talking to by using the most loaded language I can possibly think of? Do I speak in terms that if the people I'm speaking about heard them, they would think I hate them? Do my words give away that I actually hold these people in contempt? Is it possible that the way I speak and the way I act is the reason that people are actually attacking me? It's not because I love Jesus, it's because of me. Do I harbour bitterness in my heart towards people? And am I responding really badly to them and making matters worse? Now, again, when we look to Jesus, we just don't see those things, do we? Even as he's being crucified, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Even as he's being unfairly accused, he doesn't raise an abusive word. Holy people, by definition, want to look like Jesus, right? And we want to be made more like Christ. And if we're going to be like Jesus, that starts with the thoughts in our heads and what's in our hearts, because they're the things that Jim's reminded us already, govern what we say and what we do. And so are we people committed to emulating Jesus? Are we cultivating graciousness and a love of others, even our enemies, that Jesus demands of us? If you suffer, make sure you are suffering for the name of Christ and not for any other reason. Don't suffer because you're being an A-grade prat. If you do suffer for the name of Christ, don't let bitterness take root in your heart because that will make you act even worse. And it will cause you more trouble. And it will, in the end, defile you. And that won't be in any way to your good. Holy people don't suffer because they are horrible people. Thirdly, holy people don't forsake holiness for immorality. So if you look in verse 16, 
that's what this is saying. Holy people take care not to fall into immorality. Now the specific example here is Esau selling his birthright. Now if you know the story, Esau was Isaac's oldest son and he should have received his father's blessing. Uh, But he got hungry one day and he sold his inheritance to his brother Jacob for a pot of stew. Now Esau sold his inheritance for instant gratification. That's the point here. I'm not waiting for that inheritance. I'm just going to have this now. Uh, It's literally the opposite of the roll call of faith that we read earlier, where they were enduring hardship for something better, while Esau wouldn't even put up with being hungry for the sake of an inheritance to come. And as holy people, Jesus is the positive example for us here, and Esau is a negative example for us not to follow. We won't be like Esau in the instant gratification of immorality if we are holy people. What it's saying here is, do not devalue your relationship with Jesus. You know, all the blessings and the future glory that will be yours in him, do not devalue it for the instant gratification of indulging a little bit of sin today. If Esau had been blessed by Isaac, then all the covenant blessings that were promised to Abraham would be his. He would have been the child of promise. He would have had all the blessings. But Esau sold it for a meal. Now verse 17 tells us Esau regretted it. And he tried to get his father's blessing later on. But by the time he decided he wanted it after all, well it was too late. The time for blessing, the time for repentance had gone. And this is saying that repentance and the blessing that come with it will not always be available for you and me either it is available now it's available today but a time is coming when we cannot receive God's grace and blessing any longer and at that point we may well regret our choices but at that point it would all be too late in other words if you choose to pursue sin and reject a relationship with Jesus today there is no guarantee God's grace will be available to you tomorrow A time came when Esau could not repent. He couldn't receive blessing. And he's saying, don't let that happen to you. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. The ability to repent and receive God's grace and blessing is available now. It is here today. But don't go pursuing sin and assume that grace will still be here for you tomorrow. We don't know that. Instead, he says, pursue holiness today while you're able. While it's possible to enter God's rest. While it's possible to repent. While it's possible to be holy, pursue holiness. That is the truth. We only know that we have today. Two things might happen that mean the time for us to repent and receive God's grace has run out. Firstly, you might die. The fact is, one in one die. That That is a fact. None of us know the time or the day. What we do know 
is that life expectancy in communities like ours here is much lower than in other parts of the country. So you may not know when you're going to die, but you can guarantee if you live in Oldham, it's coming faster than if you live in London. (laughs) In the history of humankind, only three people might possibly not have died. And the emphasis is on possibly. Enoch, Melchizedek and Elijah, right? Of all of them, it's only absolutely clear-cut in Elijah's case. So at best, there's only one we can guarantee. Apart from those, everybody dies, right? And if we die having rejected a relationship with Jesus in favour of pursuing our sin, well, then we'll have lost any ability to repent. We'll have lost any opportunity to receive his grace. The other thing that might happen before you die is that Jesus might come again. The Bible says he's coming again. We don't know when. We only know that one day he's coming and we need to be ready. Now we could choose to press on in sin and enjoy the instant gratification that that gives us. But if Jesus returns tomorrow and we've chosen sin, then the time for us to repent, the time for us to receive his grace will have gone and it will be too late. Everyone then will be seeking his grace, I can guarantee. Everybody then will be seeking to repent, but it will be too late. And so the call to you this morning is to press on in holiness while you are able. Press on with the Lord Jesus while you can. Do not go after immorality, because if you choose sin, you may just miss the opportunity to repent. And so... Holy people don't forsake holiness in favour of immorality. Lastly, finally, uh, holy people see holiness as a community activity. There is a much broader point made here in verses 15 to 17. Told if we're holy, we'll love our enemies. Uh, We won't suffer by being horrible, but we will be gracious. Uh, And we'll flee immorality and pursue holiness when it is available. All of that is true. Uh, But it's worth noticing who these instructions are actually given to in verses 15 to 17. It's only a small point, but I think it's important. Look at verse 15. What does it say? Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. Make sure no one falls short of the grace of God. Now, that doesn't say, Christian, make sure you're okay. Does it? It says, make sure no one fall short that means help one another to pursue holiness right look at verse 16 make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person it doesn't say make sure you're not immoral though you should make sure of that but it doesn't say make sure you're not immoral but make sure others in the church are not falling into immorality this is communal stuff These are not personal commands to be holy, exactly. I mean, they are, but they're not exactly that. It is a command to the church to help the church to pursue holiness as a church. We help each other to pursue holiness. Your holiness is not a personal matter. We live in an age now where everything's individualistic. Oh, it's just about me and my relationship with God. Well, no, it isn't. And almost nothing in the Bible says so. 
Your holiness is a community activity. You strive for holiness and the church is to help you strive for holiness in these ways that the writer has just been talking about. And what that means is we're to look out for one another. We are to encourage one another towards holiness in Jesus. We must challenge one another when we see bitterness and lack of grace and immorality and all those sorts of things that take us away from Jesus. We're to encourage one another to develop the fruits of the Spirit and we are to discourage those things that suggest we are being immature or unholy. We together are to help one another grow up to maturity in Christ. The writer has just talked about the Lord's discipline before this passage. He also gives the church And church discipline to help us pursue the holiness to which we are called. And here he says, help one another pursue the holiness to which you are called. And so the challenge this morning doesn't stop with us pursuing holiness personally. The challenge is whether we are willing to help one another to pursue holiness. Will we encourage each other as we see the spirit evidenced in our lives? Will we point one another back to the Lord Jesus? Will we remind each other that we are to fix our eyes on Christ and that when we are called to become more like Jesus and where we're not becoming more like Jesus, saying that is a problem, brother or sister. Where we know other people are going astray, not doing what the Lord commands. Will we plead with them to turn in repentance and faith to Jesus while they still have time? Not encouraging sin, but warning about it. We don't want to be a room full of Esau's here, do we? We don't want to be people who thought we could indulge sin... We're even encouraged by people in the church to indulge our sin and then find out it's too late to repent. I mean, what a sad indictment of a church that would be. Now, I think some of us here are willing to be introspective. And we're happy to see if I'm pursuing holiness. I'll look inward and go, am I doing okay on this? Do I need to change? Some of us will do that, I think. At a push, we might... Encourage someone who is pressing on in Jesus, but will probably feel terribly embarrassed about it because we're British and we don't do that sort of thing, do we? I'll tell you you're doing all right and then I'll insult you just to balance it out a bit. Um, But most of us, let's be honest, how many of you are willing to challenge another brother or sister in Christ that they are going astray? How many of you, hand on heart, would come up to me and say, you've sinned and you need to stop? Because I need that as much as you do. I think at best, most of us think, ah, yeah, the elders will sort that out. <laughs> you know, we don't want to discourage anyone, do we? Not nice telling people they're sinning and they're doing what's wrong. They'll be discouraged, they might not come back. That's the worst thing, isn't it? We might not have people sat in the seats. Well, do you know what's worse? Having them sat in your seats and you have encouraged them all the way to hell. 
That is worse. I would rather people were driven away and told what holiness really is than they sat here comforted all the way to a lost eternity. And that be our fault. You will answer to the Lord for that if that is what your position is. I will answer to the Lord if that is what my position is. We have to get over ourselves and stop feeling so embarrassed about all of this and say, look, we have eternity on the line here. There is a real place called hell to which people go. And there is a real place called heaven to which we can go. And we need one another to help us to get there. Just think how awful you will feel if one day you're stood in glory as someone is ushered to hell and you said, oh, I didn't want to discourage you, so I didn't say you were in sin. Didn't want to make you feel bad. Well, they're going to feel a lot worse then, aren't they? And you're going to feel a lot worse then. You know, I'm being serious. Church discipline is not something that just the elders of your church do. I mean, it might be, but it shouldn't be. You know, church discipline is something for all of us to do. But the elders are not the ones who get bust in when there's an awkward conversation that you don't want to have. That's not their role. You know, we are members of a body. And when your knee is broken, you don't go, ah, you know, I'll leave the hand to sort that out. Your whole body goes down to the doctor, doesn't it? Gets it sorted. We're members of a body. We are members together. We are called to pursue holiness together. This is a communal activity that involves us all. It involves you, it involves me, it involves the members, it involves the elders. We're all to encourage each other to press on in Christ. We're all to speak about the evidence of the Spirit at work in our lives. We're all to call wandering, straying brothers and sisters back to holiness. That is the call on us this morning. Not just your elders, not just the deacons and officers, everybody. If you see it, say it. If you see somebody pressing on well, tell them, encourage them. If you see someone straying, tell them, warn them. If we're to avoid being a church full of Esau's, we must commit to each other in community. That doesn't just mean becoming a member, though it doesn't mean less than that. It means committing to having those difficult and sometimes awkward conversations with people. Being willing to call people out for their sin. Being willing to encourage people in what they do well. Being willing to help them to look more like Jesus. So we commit to encouraging one another to pursue holiness. Because without it, None of us will see the Lord.